Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is a, another bittersweet edition. The reason is because this is, this is very likely the last session of our book. Oh, so no. <laughs> the last session of our book called Victory. I'm glad one person was upset that Kabbalah and Coffee made shut down. No, God forbid. So, Victory of Light. Uh, we're up to chapter 9. Chapter 9 and 10 are very short. So this is, uh, this is likely the last edition. And before we close out today, we're going to take a little bit of a poll to decide which of these three books we should cover next. But more on that later. Let's begin with Song of Songs, because I know that that's right where y'all wanted to be. Song of Songs. Can anybody tell me what they know about Song of Songs? Shir Hashir. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. Song of Songs, authored by King Solomon. Song of Songs. Here you go. Take and pass. And take and pass, please. You poetry, good, good. What's the nature of the song? What does it talk about? Love story. It's a love story. It's exactly what it is. It's a love story. Not only is it a love story. It's a very passionate love story. Very passionate. We are on page 62. It's a very passionate love story. And when you read it, you're like, I mean, wow, this is like, okay, I, I guess King Solomon branched out into other forms of writing. You know, King Solomon wrote, um, sev- wrote several books. He wrote um, the book of Proverbs, Mishle. He wrote Kohelet, which is Ecclesiastes. Do we know what an Ecclesiastes is? Do we know? Sisi, what is it? What is the word Ecclesiastes? Kohelet. Kahal is like a gathering together. Does it have any, any connotation? Anyway, he wrote Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. He also wrote Mishle, and he wrote Shir Hashirim. Celebration. There you go. I'm, I'm all for celebration. In fact, the song Celebrate Good Times, come on. It was originally. It was basically. That's like kind of. So, Shir Hashirim, though, he wrote this when he was younger, and it's Book of Love. It's a love song. It's about two people who are madly in love with each other. And they talk about the ups and downs of their relationships. Ups and downs, the moments of their togetherness, the moments of their separation, and how at some point the other feels like maybe the other is not interested anymore, and then they come back, and then it's an anticipation, and it's, it's an incredible, powerful love story. And the way it... Now, now, here's the interesting thing. It's not just found in your, I would say... Um, your local bookshop, but there aren't that many left. But it's not just a, a novel, you know, a romantic novel that's found in a bookstore, but it's actually one of the 24 Jewish books of Scripture. There are only 24 Chaf Dalid, 24 holy books of Scripture in the, uh, in, in, the, in the Jewish faith. Five books of Moses, okay, that's five. And then you have books of the prophets, books of the writings, so the prophets would be like Samuel and Joshua and, and, and uh, 
Judges and Kings and Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah. Those are the books of the prophets. And then you have books of the writings like Psalms. Uh, you have the Megillot, the various scrolls like the book of Esther, the book of Ruth, the book of Lamentations. And Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, is one of them. And it really boggles the mind because, again, when you read the book, when you read Shir Hashirim, it reads pretty much like a very romantic love song. But the way it's always been understood from the beginning is that it's not just about the love between two human beings, but Shir Hashirim is about the love between the Jewish people and God. The entire love story is a metaphor for the love, for the the dramatic love that exists between God and the Jewish people. So it talks about youthful love. You know, following each other without, you know, before, before we knew anything really about each other. Then it talks about challenges along the road. There are many challenges in our relationship with God. The ups and downs, the moments where God says, are you with me? Are you really with me? Or did you kind of, uh, you turned your back and that's it. And times that we've said to God, are you with us? Or did you just check out and you're not coming back? And so Shir Hashirim talks about this incredible, dramatic love between God and the Jewish people that has its, its incredible ups and downs. So it's never really been read from a Jewish perspective, never been read as just, you know, uh, King Solomon's foray into, uh, into the romance novel. This is his, his description and depiction about... Huh? <laughs> it took me a second. I'm <laughs> laughing about what you just said. <laughs> but rather, this is clear, I mean, it's always been understood that it, this is about the love, the story of the, the love story that exists between God and the Jewish people. Now, there's a powerful verse that exists within Song of Songs. Oh, there are many, many. Beautiful, beautiful and, and powerful verses. And if you really want to understand it, you have to study it with the commentaries. Otherwise, you're just going to see, um, my darling, your eyes are as red as wine and your lips are as red as... That's what you're going to see. That's what it says. You know what? Yeah, can you pass? No, not in a bed. Maybe your lips are as red as mine. But I'm forgetting. Maybe red eyes were good. Bloodshot, how romantic. Um, Marty, can you pass the chumash that's right behind you? There's a blue one, two. Um, okay, Marty's right there. Fourth shelf down. No, 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 not going to be that one. It's the, the, the stone. The stoned edition. Stone. Yeah, that's it. That's good. That's, that's the one. This is the one right here. So this is the stone edition. This has the various Megillot. Now, Shir Hashirim is read by some on the, on the holiday of Passover. So it's appropriate because Passover really begins the love story. God says, let me take you out of this bad place. And many a novel and a movie has been crafted from this, from this plot. Let me take you out of this bad place and now you're coming with me. Huh? Anyway, okay, good. Let's take a look. Uh, yeah, just some some of the verses over here. If if only we can find it. Shir Hashirim. 
Oh, I don't know if this this may already have. This may already have the commentary. Yeah, here we go. The translation presented here is allegorical. Oh man. All right. So you don't get the. Your cheeks are lovely with rows of gems. Your neck with necklaces. All right. That's not. Anyway. Yeah, well. Anyway, so here's the point. The point is that it's it can read straight up as a as a love song, but it's really a song about the love between the Jewish people and God and the challenge. It's, it hasn't always been easy. hasn't been easy on both sides. God's felt like we've checked out and we've felt that like God's checked out. This is true throughout our history. Now, there is a verse in here that I want to focus on. It says, Mayim Rabim lo yochlu lechabot et ha'ava. It says that many waters cannot extinguish the love. Unaharais lo And rivers cannot wash it away. That's what it says. Many rivers, many waters, cannot wash away the love, and rivers, sorry, cannot extinguish the love, and rivers cannot wash it away. So, it's talking about, this is from the perspective of the Jewish people. And the statement is that despite all of the challenges, what are Mayim Rabbim, what are, what, are what are many waters? So the mystics explain, what are the many waters? Many waters are the challenges that each of us face. It's noted, especially, it's the challenges of a livelihood. Tirdot haparnasa, The challenges of making a living. That can inundate us, and it seems sometimes to flood us. To the point that we're drowning. Maim rabim. Many waters. And the verse says, though, that despite the many waters... Lo yuchlu lechabot et ha'ava. They cannot extinguish the love. They're not able to extinguish the love. And not only many waters, but even raging rivers cannot wash it away. So the mystics explain this verse to mean like this. What the verse is really telling us is the invincibility, the invincibility of the soul. The soul is so powerful, the soul is so strong, that despite the best efforts of the world, of the distractions and the concerns that we have, despite all of that, can never wash away the love, the inherent, intrinsic, innate love that we have for God in our hearts. In other words, we have an unbreakable soul. We have an absolutely unbreakable soul. There's a part of us, as we've discussed many times, that we didn't create, and therefore we can't destroy. There's a part of us that exists, that exists in a place before time and place. There's a part of the infinite presence within us. And that part is not susceptible to any ups and downs. That part is not susceptible, it's not, it's not vulnerable to the chaos that rages around us. So when the world seems upside down, when our world, God forbid, seems upside down, there's a part of us that remains absolutely intact, 
Absolutely, when I say grounded, I don't mean grounded, earthly grounded. I mean grounded in heaven. Grounded in God. In the ultimate grounding. And that is the pure essence of the soul. Mayim rabim lo Many waters cannot extinguish the love. The nature is when you have fire, and you take water and you apply water to fire, nine out of ten times, unless you've got a really big fire, and really little water, or if you have a lot of fire, nine out of ten times, what's going to happen? Who's going to win? Equal measure of water, equal measure of fire. Who wins? The water. It's the nature. Right? It's not like, oh, you apply fire to water and the water evaporates. Yeah, that's true. If you have like a pot and it's, the water is sitting in the pot and it's not directly on it. But if you, put, if you apply water directly to fire, water by nature extinguishes the fire. That's the way it works. So you would think the same thing is true with our soul. That when you create a safety, when you create a safe bubble around your soul and you protect it, so then you're okay. But when you're exposed to the Mayim Rabbim, to the many waters, forget about it. It's done. It's extinct. It can, it can get extinguished, God forbid. Comes along Shirashirim, comes along the uh, King Solomon in Song of Songs, and he says, no, it doesn't work like that. Despite the many waters, they cannot extinguish the love, and the rivers cannot wash it away. So the question is why? And the answer is, as I just mentioned, because despite the fact that the waters are very powerful and the waters are very real and the concerns are there. Despite all of that, the reality is that the soul is invincible, the soul is unbreakable, and the soul cannot be extinguished by its definition. Just like you can't kill God despite what we've tried to do in the past few hundred years. right? I, I always joke about the scene in a subway somewhere. God is dead. Nietzsche. Nietzsche is dead. God. <laughs> Despite our efforts to kill God, so to speak, the reality is that you can't really do that. You can't do that, and just like you can't kill God, you can't kill the soul. Why, though? Because do we have a, the peace, that peace? Exactly. We have a peace of God. The author of writes in Tanya. He says... We have within us a chelek eloka mimal mamish. Mamosh. He says we have a piece of a chelek eloka, a piece of God. God from above, mimal of above, within us. Mamish means literally. And it's very interesting. He's, like, he's basically saying, and Tanya, I'm not speaking metaphorically. We have, it's like a piece of God within us. It's like literally. Mamash also means mamashis. It means something tangible. It's a piece of God made tangible within us. That's the soul that we have. A chelikalaka, a piece of God. No matter what you try to do to it, it's not going to go anywhere. Now, you can, you can ignore it. You can tie it up. You can exile it. You can lock it in a prison. You can do all sorts of things to it. But you can't destroy it. It's always going to be there. And the fire that burns, it's almost like you know, like a pilot fire. Like a, pi- like a flame, a pilot flame that always is lit. And from even if it goes out, you can always relight it from the pilot. I don't know if this is a good analogy because I don't really know much about pilots. And, yeah. yeah? Okay. And it works. And you can relight the... You can relight it from the pilot. Because the gas is almost there. 
The gas is always there. And it's like the example we've given before and, and recently a few weeks ago about the Flintstone. Right? The Flintstone that has the fire within it or the source of fire. And even if you submerge it in water, you pull it out, you shake it off, you strike it, produces the spark. It's hard to come up with an analogy, with an example in the human experience where you can apply its opposite. It looks like it's destroyed, but you can never destroy it. But I think the Flintstone is one that's used in Kabbalah as, as a good example for something that it looks like it's gone, it looks like it's, 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 you destroyed it from its potential to create fire, but you have it. It may look like it's underwater, but it's not. And so this is the point, of the, this is what Kabbalah says, the point of what King Solomon is saying. That although it sometimes seems, not only for the outsider looking in, it seems like this for ourselves. That you can think to yourself, well, once upon a time I had a drive. Once upon a time I had a fire burning. Once upon a time I really believed in God. Once, in, once upon a time I was in love with God. Maybe once upon a time I was in love with myself. I believed in myself. I believed that I could accomplish something. I believed that I could change the world. But today, it's my rabbim. I'm trying to eat out a living. I'm trying to put food on the table. That's one example. Maybe there's health challenges, whatever it is. But now I'm drowning with other stuff. So there's no fire. The fire is gone. King Solomon says, Not only is it, did it not extinguish your fire, it cannot extinguish the fire. It's not possible to extinguish the fire. The question is why, yeah. Um, I, did you want to finish? No, 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 no. No, I'm good, I'm good. No, go ahead. I just, I just um, had a thought about the whole burning bush, fire, burning bush, not extinguished. Not consuming. Not consumed. Yeah. Not burning, but not consumed. Yeah. Can't go out. Can't go out. Can't go out. Any parallels? 100%. 100%. It says that this was showing Moshe, the Jewish people. It's a fire that can't go, that can't burn out. See, a fire that consumes, so once you're finished consuming, it's gone. A hundred percent. It's, one of, it's one, of the, one, of the, one of the classic ways of understanding it. Is that it represents a fire that can't... No, no, no. Not a low level at all. I'm saying, on the contrary, I'm saying it's, it's, you're, you channeled an authentic, an authentic interpretation of, of that experience. Is that it's, it's exactly what I was teaching Moshe. That the fire... Because one of the, one of the arguments that Moshe uses to get out of it, to get out of his, the mission is, what if the Jewish people don't believe me? What if they're not ready? What if they've given up hope? What if they don't, what if they don't want to leave? So, why am I wasting my time? He's tr- so God showed him from the beginning the answer to this, to this question. There's going to be a fire that's burning and it's going to be constantly burning. And it's not going to make sense. Because what's it burning on? What's, what's it consuming? What's, it, what's the fuel? Slavery? Being broken? How is that... Water? What's, what's the fuel? Can't light fire from water? In this example today? It's going to be burning. Have faith. To be a leader means not only to have faith in God, but to have faith in the people that you're leading. That's one of the first lessons that Moshe learns as a leader. To be a leader, you have to believe in the people. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Alright, so getting back to this point. So the... So King Solomon says, not only does it not extinguish the love, but it cannot extinguish the love. Why can't it extinguish the love? Why not? 
Why water should so we said before because the soul is too powerful, it's a part of God. So just like you can't destroy God, you can't destroy the soul. That's true. But there's another angle to this as well. And that is that the whole purpose of the water is not to drown the soul, but to lift up the soul. As we've discussed many times. The purpose of the water, of the Mayim Rabbim, of the flood that rages around us, is not to, God forbid, sink us and sink the soul, but rather to create an elevation for the soul. And the, and the, the clearest example, I know that the movie just, just hit, Noah, I don't know if you've seen it, I haven't, I, I learned the story from the original, I don't know that I need to see <laughs> Russell Crowe, is it Russell Crowe is in it? I don't know that I need to see Russell Crowe uh, play the part. I'm not sure how accurate the story is. I haven't, you know, I don't know anything about the film. But here's the deal. Kabbalah explains it like this, using the analogy of the ark and the flood. You have a boat, you have a ship, you have an ark that, that is sitting, you know, he's building the ark, 120 years, he's hacking. He must have been Jewish. <laughs> Trying to build something. <laughs> 120 years. Uh, give me, I, I don't know that I would get it done in 120. All right. It would take longer. So, 120 years he's building this ark. Before the flood, it's sitting on the ground. After the flood, it's way high up. If there is, if if you're attached, if there is the ability to float, the more water you have, the higher you become, the higher you rise. Take, take a bathtub. You take one of those uh, I get the rubber duckies all over my, my bathtub for the kids. And, you know, I, I, I may or may not... <laughs> blame it on the kids, right? <laughs> By the way, it says that Rashi says that one of the matriarchs, she said, Oh, thank God, I've, I finally have a child. And so one of the matriarchs said, <laughs> Rashi says, what a, what, one of the benefits of a child is that when, when there's a mess, so you can blame it on the kid. You can say, Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So here's the point. You take, you, you fill, so the rubber duckies are sitting on the, on the floor of the bath. Turn on the water, fill up the bath. Next thing you know, they're floating. It's a party. It's a parade. Rubber duckies everywhere. And then you get the top. Well, so here's the point. I'm channeling my inner Sesame Street. Rubber ducky, <laughs> you're the one. That's been years. All right. So you have here, because of the water, you have an elevation. That's the purpose of the water. The purpose is not to sink us, is not to destroy us, not to extinguish the fire, not to extinguish God forbid the soul. It can't. So what's the purpose? What's the point? To rise, to allow us, to cause us, to force us to rise up. To rise higher than the status quo. To jostle us, to shake us, to wake us up. And to discover the true power and the true invincibility of the soul. You can't discover the absolute core strength of a thing until you've tested it to its very core. You will never dis- discover the absolute core capabilities of something until you push it to its limits. Rabbi, I would just add one more thing there. I think that not only is the, the core, uh, the hechida of the soul, rises to the top, but, but, because I just saw the movie last night. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. That, that everything else 
comes along with it. It's consumed. No, oh. no the, 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 I said no. The, the base, the animal, the, the 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 base human existence, the that lost their faith in, in God. That that, that, go, that kind of goes away in the pro- that goes away. That, that's and that's a beautiful parallel because that's what we've been talking about here. That the more in touch with the core you are, the more the other distractions they just dissipate. They dissipate because you're living from a different place. What takes you to that place? What takes you to that core place? It's the water. It's the flood. You can call it water. You can call it fire. You can call whatever you want to call it. Whatever it is, for every person it's different. But it's, it's, it's what's, what, what pushes you to the limit. What pushes you to the absolute limit, to test your, 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 the absolute strength. It's like when you're manufacturing a car or whatever it is, and you're, like, you're testing the metal, you, you push it to its limits, to its breaking point. The, when you push it to its breaking point, the soul doesn't break. But you discover the, the power of the soul. It's not that the soul even gets stronger. The soul is a part of God. It's not going to get stronger. But you're going to see the power of the soul. And you're going to get in touch with the soul at that point. Because it's way too easy to mix metaphors. It's way too easy to float through life. In a little inner tube. You know. Just, you know, with a little, a little drink with an umbrella in it. You know, a little lazy river. But when the white water hits, that's when you got to get your 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 game on. Right. <laughs> so, I think I'm, I'm also thinking almost the antithesis that it both elevates but it destroys, and and fire is that source but it destroys. So you know we're talking about water and floods, but there's also tsunami, which which where the water destroys, or you know burning and is in. The Holocaust is the, is the incineration. Yeah. But water so, fire also purifies. But I'm, I'm, so I think that's why I'm, is it, so is it, is that the metaphor in a sense to be able to show the antithesis that you have to, that it can elevate but it also can destroy and in that sense of destroying, almost compelling you to... to well, I think, I think, I think I want to go along the lines of what, of what Alex said before. I think Part of the power is that it destroys the status quo. It destroys how you defined yourself previously. Because that's no longer okay. That's no longer going to work. The, where you were, where you were existing before that level of existence, that doesn't exist anymore. It's been, that's been destroyed. You're being put in a challenging situation where everything that you knew, everything you were comfortable with, where you were floating down the river, that's gone. That's destroyed. And all that's left is your core. And it's from there that you can regenerate, rebuild on a, on a higher level. But the point is that that core cannot go anywhere. How do you get to that core? Almost by destroying everything else beforehand. And that process is a cleansing process. Because the ultimate cleansing is to get to the deepest part of who you are. That's why it says in Kabbalah that the, that the, the, the waters were on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is, is synonymous with... Idea of a mikvah, mikvah, the, the minimum requirement for a, uh, a ritual cleansing, a bath of, of immersion, is forty saw, which is a, a certain measure of a measure of you know volume. So the forty is synonymous with with cleansing. So the Alter Rebbe writes in, in Torah R transformation, rebirth. That because yeah, because the Alter Rebbe asked the forty weeks of gestation, exactly. 
So it's, and it says 40 days is the initial formation, takes 40 days. The initial. It's interesting. The Alter Rebbe asks in, in Torah R, and uh, he has discourses, mystical texts on each parsha. Torah R. And Lakute Torah. So the Alter Rebbe asks the question, he says, about the flood. He says, why did God need to bring a flood? Couldn't he have brought fire? Couldn't he have, there are many ways that he could have destroyed the world. And then he asks a deeper question. So not only, God doesn't have to do anything to destroy the world. Because there's a fundamental Kabbalistic idea that God has to constantly infuse the world with energy and light in order for the world to keep on sustaining. Because the natural state of the world is non-existence. And so in order for the world to exist, it requires a proactive effort up from God's part to constantly infuse. It's almost like an electronic device that when it's plugged in, it's working. When it's not plugged in, it's not working. So for God to destroy the world, what would He have to do? Nothing. Nothing. The ultimate nothing. For God to destroy and start again, all He would have to do is not create in that moment. In one moment of not creating, everything reverts to nothingness. So why did He have to do something to destroy? So the Alter Rebbe answers that it wasn't destruction. It was destruction on one hand, certainly destruction, but the objective was, was, um, was purification. Was to purify the world, to cleanse the world. And almost to, like a rebirth of the world, and that's the, the symbolism of that is water. So that's why God used the water, symbolic of that, of that rebirth. It's also, you know, we're coming up to Passover, to Pesach. When the Jews left Egypt, what was the first stop that they had after Egypt? A few days later? They went through the sea. They also went through the water, walked through the water. It's almost like water is a symbolism of birth and rebirth and, and, and a new beginning. So, it's very significant. It's very significant that the flood of Noah, that Noah's flood is, was water and not anything else because it wasn't only about destroying, it was about rebirth and about getting in touch with, uh, with, with the, the, the truest part of, of who they were and kind of, it's almost like restarting the world from that place of purity. But for us, getting back to, on a personal level because that's where we really want to go with this, on a personal level, the floods that, are, that rage around us, the purpose is to number one, destroy the status quo but also, number two, to lift us up to a higher level. By getting us in touch with our soul, our neshama that cannot be destroyed at all. Make sense? Okay. Now, the same thing, the same thing can be said regarding galut. What's galut? Exile. Exile. Galut is Exile. So for 2,000 years, we've been pretty much homeless. No temple. You know, you look at the Torah, and the Torah is so temple-centric. It's so like, this is the temple, and this is like the center of holiness, and this is what you should be doing. And so many mitzvot, more than half of the mitzvot of the 613, are temple-related. And you think about how for the last 2,000 years... We don't have a temple. We're not, even though we're back in Israel to some extent, but it's not, it's not. 
we don't have that, that cohesiveness, we don't have that unity that we once had. And it seems like a pretty dark place. The world seems dark. So on a personal level, things can seem dark. On a global, on a national level, if you will, it can seem dark. On a global level, it can seem dark. And sometimes we wonder, why is it that it's so dark? So here I want to share with you something else. Sometimes things are so dark. What's the ultimate definition of, what's the ultimate darkness? No light. What's the ultimate of no light? The ultimate is, say it again. No, the ultimate darkness, what's the ultimate darkness? The ultimate darkness is, There is. The ultimate darkness is such darkness that you don't even know that it's dark. It's so dark that you don't even know that it's dark. Okay, I'll give you a story. Story goes, there was once a Jewish family that lived on a plot of land. And the way it used to work back in the day, this is not necessarily a true story, but elements are true of this story. Back in the day, the way it works was that there was a paritz. You know what a paritz is? A paritz was a wealthy landowner. Like a squire. It was a squire who owned land. In Poland, Europe, and other places in Europe, and Russia even. It was a paritz who owned land. And the paritz would sublease parts of the land to other individuals, including Jewish families. And what would the Jewish family do? Either they would be farmers, or they would be innkeepers. They would have, let's say, an inn. A tavern. And they would, people passing through, they would stay there, they would have a bar there, people would drink, they would collect money, and then they would, in turn, give some of the money to the parts, to the squire. So they would have to pay rent, a lot of rent. So they paid rent, and they were able to live on the land, and also eke out a living. This was the model, this was the, 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 the system, Some, I guess a feudal system, whatever, this was the system. What happened when times were tough and the weather was bad and there were no people traveling through? So what, what happened to the income? No more income. So can you pay your rent when there's no income? Can't pay your rent. What does the parts do? That's it. But not only evict. Sometimes they would throw you into a dungeon. Right? Because if you're in debt, they have debtor, debtor's prisons and debtor's, debtor's dungeons and so they would throw you into uh, to a dungeon. So the story goes, it's a, it's a fictional story, but it's to bring out a point. You'll see the point in a second. The story goes that a family was thrown, a small family was thrown into a dungeon. Maybe a few, let's, let's make it easier. It'll get weird if we don't do this. Let's say a few families were thrown into the dungeon. You'll see why it would get weird. Few families were thrown into the dungeon. Right? It wasn't just one family that had hard times, it was a few families. And, of course, it was very difficult to be in the dungeon. Now they were fed, or there was food somehow, there was food. Don't worry about the food, they had food. Clothes, they had clothes. They had basic living, but they were still underground. No light. There was no light. Maybe it was a cave, maybe it was underground. There was no light. So the first generation of of dungeon dwellers, they missed the light. They missed the light. They missed the sun. 
Because they knew the son. They missed the son. But then there was the next generation. That's why it's good. We're not within, within one family here. Multiple families. Now there's a next generation. Next generation of dungeon dwellers. And what happens? So they're born in the darkness. Now they have never seen the sun. But they've heard about the sun. They've heard it from their parents. And the parents say, you know, there's a sun out there. There are trees. There's, there's a beautiful brightness out there that you don't see here. But one day we'll get out. And it will be beautiful. And it will be bright. And this is darkness. And the next generation, they felt that they were missing something. They felt that they were missing the light. Because there's a light out there that they don't have. And they heard about the light. And they believed that there was a light. Then there was a next generation. And a next generation. Every generation, the parents told their children about this great light that exists up there outside somewhere in the world. But as the generations progressed, progressed, one generation to the next generation, eventually the dungeon dwellers grew accustomed to the darkness. And they stopped maybe even believing in the light. That there would be a light, that there is a light, that there is a sun. And they stopped waiting for it. Because to them, the darkness was light. And they didn't see anything wrong with the darkness. Because that's all that they knew. And it wasn't their fault. Because that's all that they knew. That's where they were born. That's where they lived. That's where their parents were born and that's where they lived. That's where their their parents were born and they lived. In this state of darkness. To the point that they stopped, they they stopped believing that there could be light, and they stopped hoping that there would be light. The greatest form of darkness is a darkness where somebody, where you, where the person believes that that darkness is light. The greatest form of darkness, see, a darkness that you can see as darkness, is only half a darkness. It's a half a darkness. It's a habachayshech. Why? It's a half darkness because you call it out as being dark. You say, this is darkness, I don't like this, I want the light, and now you're going to work to get out. So it's, it is dark, but it's only half a darkness because you, you, you recognize it for what it is, and you're trying to get out of it. When you believe that the darkness is light, now you've got a problem. Yeah, because what are you striving toward? What are you, what are you trying to get to? There's nothing greater to aspire to. This is it. This is light. You say, but this is darkness. To you it's darkness. To me it's light. I'm very comfortable here. I'm very comfortable sitting in the dark. But it's dark. To you it's dark. To me it's light. I'm perfectly comfortable here. The reason, that's the most debilitating darkness. It's the most debilitating darkness because it doesn't inspire any drive, any desire to get out of the darkness. Not only that, if you understand darkness to be the concept of opacity, where you don't see truth, the ultimate not seeing truth is not even knowing that what you're seeing is false. The ultimate obscure obscurity is when, things, when the truth is so obscured that you think that what's false is true. That's the ultimate obscurity. Does that make sense? 
Because when you know that it's false, but it's what you're dealing with, it's what you're grappling with, the obscurity is there, but it's not complete. It's only half. Because you know that it's dark, and you know it's not light. So again, if you consider darkness the concept of that which is obscured, so it's obscured on one level because it's dark. On the other level, it's not obscured because you know that it's dark and you know that it's not the truth. You know it's not light. So it's not, a, it's not fully opaque. It's transparent. It's transparent to what it is, which is darkness. What is the condition of full opacity, of full being fully opaque? It's when you consider the darkness light. You can't see through the darkness. It's so thick that you don't even call it darkness, you call it light. So that's where we are today. Welcome. And, and we say we're fine. Life is good. Life is okay. What are you talking about? That's the point. If you don't have the contrast. Let, let's, have, let's have that problem. Let's have that problem. But you understand that if you tell the average, you tell, yeah, we're, we're all, right. thank God we're here, we're, you know, we're pretty much what we need, more or less. Yeah, we all need stuff, but you know, we're America, things are, things are okay. And, and, and you talk about darkness, so what are you talking about? That's the point. When you can't recognize, I'm sorry, when you can't recognize the darkness, then you know you're in trouble. I'm thinking of Plato's story of the cave, where somebody, they were all lined up in a cave. Now, they could see shadows, and that was the reality. Somebody escaped, went out, and saw... Saw the light. The light came back to tell everybody, wait a minute, there's something else out here that's really light? And they wouldn't, but they didn't believe it. That's the role of a tzaddik. That's the role of a tzaddik. The, I, yeah, I'm not familiar with that story. That's the role of a tzaddik. A righteous person sees the light. And says, hey guys, we got, we got to get out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to destroy the analogy. But Go for it. Wouldn't you have a sense of the light within, regardless of You would if you're in touch with it. Just because it's within doesn't mean that we're, that we, that we're in touch with within. That's what we're talking about here. And we're going to get to there. When you're in touch with, in, with what's within, then you can begin seeing the light. But we don't typically live from that space. Even though we know it's there. Even though it is there. Just because we have the... Let's tell you something else. Just because we have an indestructible piece of God within us, doesn't mean that a person can't be destroyed. A person can let the world, can let things destroy them. Others... The realities of life destroy them. Doesn't happen. It happens all the time. Well, how is that possible? But we just said you have an indestructible soul. You have that indestructible soul, and you also have the choice whether or not to access it and to live by it, or to or to allow yourself to be destroyed by something that's not intended to destroy you. So that's the choice we have to make. So yes, we have light within. And at any moment, we can discover the light. But the question is, do we? And how do we? That's what happens when all of a sudden you read something or you hear something and it resonates. It may be totally different from what you've always thought or believed, but 
But it also it must also push us to recognize that where we are right now, individually, communally, globally, is not where we need to be. If it doesn't evoke that sense of there's some there's some there's a better place that we all need to get to, then it's not truly the light. Yeah. A hundred percent, yes, yes, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, and I want to add one more point to that. It's not only finding the spark within us that's the antidote to the darkness, but here's the kicker, and this will take us into chapter nine. It's finding the light within the darkness itself. It's finding the light within the darkness. And when you find the light within the darkness, you don't have to introduce a different light. And you don't have to climb out of the cave even. Because suddenly, all of that darkness is itself the greatest explosion of light. And if it sounds too esoteric, let me explain. I said before that the waters, the many waters, are there to lift you up. Can't destroy you because they Did I say that? Mm-hmm. If I didn't say that, I meant to say that. Right? The waters are there. Not only can they not destroy you, they're not intended to destroy you, they're intended only to lift up. Or they're intended to destroy other elements, but to get you to your core and therefore to lift you up. Turns out, and the dark, the water, I use the water as an example here, he's using the terms of darkness, it's the same thing. Water, darkness, whatever. It's whatever is your kryptonite. It's the same thing. It's all synonymous. It's all synonymous. It's not there, the water, the darkness, the crypt, it's not there to destroy you. It's not there to cover the light. It's there to bring out within you a greater light. It's there to bring out a greater and more powerful light. It's not a punishment. 2,000 years is not punishment. The Rebbe in a landmark talk once said, it doesn't make sense it's a punishment. If it's a punishment, it should get easier and easier as the issues get, as we atone for issues. The more you atone, it should get easier. It's not getting easier, it's getting harder. He said this right after the Holocaust. It's 1,900 years later, and we just lost 6 million? It doesn't make sense. How does that make sense? Mathematically, it doesn't, it doesn't graph out. It doesn't work. So the Rebbe said, it's not, nothing to do with the punishment. Nothing to, we don't understand, but what, it, what, what Gullus does, what exile does, is it stirs us, and it pushes us, and it drives us to discover a deeper power, a deeper light within And in turn, we start to realize that the darkness of exile is not actually dark. Because the purpose is light. This too is coming from God, and this too is light. The moment you realize that, its purpose has been satisfied, and therefore it doesn't need to exist. Say that again one more time. The last thing you just said, say it again. 
purpose, the purpose of the darkness is light. Is to, is, to, is to move you to find that, a greater light within. Just like the purpose of the waters, the flood, is to make you rise up. It's not to sink you, it's to make you rise up. The moment you recognize the darkness for that purpose, number one, it's, it won't destroy you. It's only going to make you stronger. And you realize that the purpose of the darkness itself is light. So the, so, and so the darkness is light. You discover the light within the darkness. And you see the light within and you see the light within the darkness. Because you recognize that the darkness is not really dark. The darkness is only one of God's tools to get you to a greater state of light. So the, it's not darkness. It's only darkness if it if it obscures, if it conceals, if it hides. But now it's revealing, it's illuminating. It's making you see God in a greater way than you saw God before. So you've now, I would, you can't say redefine, you've now truly defined the darkness at its core. This, the core of the darkness is light. And once you see it for what it is, it's now served its purpose, and it no longer needs to be dark. Now that you've seen its purpose, it no longer needs to look dark, at least even on the outside. Because it served its purpose. Its purpose is to get you to a greater sense of light. And you, you, you I achieve that. also bring up another point, though, and I think it's just in terms of just even as we exist. So we, you know, young children understand self, and then there's a sense of self in relation to other and self right. in relation to the world. You see that as kids draw, they yeah. draw only the. Just yeah. this themselves, and yeah, then there's yeah. another person, and then there's the world around them. Yeah. But what you're saying, though, is that I think in some ways staying in the darkness is that we alone individually can find that or we can find that in relation to another but what is I, holding us back in a sense is that community is the whole is it, it can't just be on an individual basis or an individual person in relationship it has to be uh, there's uh, yeah I, I, I don't know if that's if I, I I didn't mention that a little bit in other words the concept is the, the community in the world yeah yeah, yeah. so here's the deal and, and I was really touching on another that's not necessarily what I just said but, but that is true. Because the reality is, if it's only light for me, but it's dark everywhere else, then my light's not a real light either. Yeah, it was like what Cece was saying about the Pluto, uh, Pluto, um, Plato and Pluto, was, you know, going on. So I might have seen the light, but, I'm, but nobody else has. Yeah. So it's not going to change anything. The Rebbe said in the last discourse that the Rebbe gave out before his stroke in 1992, if it's not everywhere, then it's not the unlimited light, because by definition, if it's essential and it's truly everywhere, then it would be everywhere. If it's not, it means it's limited. So if it's limited, yeah, to light up the world. And that's what we're talking about here, is to get rid of this exile, to get out of the cave. So it's a very important to keep these few ideas in mind. Number one, it's dark. And if you don't think that it's dark, then you really have to be worried. Because now you know it's so dark, you don't even think that it's dark. Take my word for it. And if you don't think that it's dark, you just have to open up your eyes and look around at the world and see that we're not where we need to be. Whether it's Jewishly, whether it's globally, universally, we're not where we need, and personally, we're not where we need to be. We're not where we want to be. And we demand that God make a better world. So number one is to recognize that it's dark. And again, if it feels light, oy vey, it's really dark. The greatest darkness 
is the darkness that's, that, 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 that seems like light. That's the worst type of darkness. That's step number one. Step number two is to understand that the darkness, the purpose of the darkness, is to push us, is to push you and me to discover a greater light within. Discover a greater light without, to discover God. And in doing so, we reveal the true purpose of the darkness, which was to get us to a deeper place. And when we do that, there's no longer a need for the darkness because it's fulfilled its task. Its purpose was to test us and to push us to, to get to a deeper place. When we've gotten to that place, there need not be darkness anymore. And that's what Mashiach is about. Yeah, and but like you said, you said, it's not to curse the darkness, but to embrace it. Because, you know, that it, it really is, it goes to the next level. So like, the, the quote from the movie, it's, like it's, it's, it's all going to be okay in the end, if it's not okay, it's not the end. You know, so if we... Um, we can't embrace it too much. No, we embrace it by, by working. So, 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 because it's a part of you, and, and, and it's what, what, so this is, this is like what I need to work on. This is how do I find the light here? How do, because it, it, it even says it, that when God created the heavens, he created light, and he created darkness. So the lightness is always there. And, and, and so part of the thing is to unfold it. It's all unfolding. And since we're all connected, that once I get a light, and then when I try to spread that some lesson, they reject the light that I found, I shouldn't be discouraged and realize that there's still darkness there, and I need to get to that next level. And, and like I said, and, and when there's this pure light, then it's Mashiach time. That's, and that, that's, that's a world where there's no longer a need for the darkness to move us to an essential place, because we're already there. The darkness has fulfilled its purpose. You, don't, you no longer need a flood to get the boat up there. It's already up there, yeah. Would you please clarify again the difference between our own light yeah. and the light of the world? It's the same thing. Well, that's why I thought, even if the world is dark, if we find light within ourselves, we can help illuminate the world. Yes. Well, the world is illuminated by individuals being in touch with their light. That's... It's it's the, the, a community is comprised of individuals. A world is comprised of, we're a, you know, a, a room is illuminated, okay, by the sun also, but it's illuminated by each light bulb shining and doing its thing. So it's 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 a it's a team effort, if you will. It's individuals shining brightly that make for a brighter world. All right. So I think with all of this introduction in mind, I think we're ready to take on. Chapters 9 and 10. Close out the text. And uh, the grand finale is, is, is at hand. 62. David, please take it away. The idea of lighting the Hanukkah lamp from when the sun sets refers especially to the darkness of exile. Especially the doubled and redoubled darkness of the times of the advent of Mashiach. So let's, let's explain what he's saying here. We know that the Talmud says that when do you light the Hanukkah lamp? Not during the day. Not in the afternoon. It's after the sun sets. Unlike the, the, the menorah that was lit in the temple in the Beit HaMikdash, the, candle, the, the Chanukiah, the Chanukah menorah, is lit, which was lit in the afternoon, on Chanukah we light it specifically after the sun sets. And we explained up until chapter 9, we explained that what the reason, the reason is because it refers to a personal... It, it, it's it's the, the concept of fighting darkness. 
when you feel challenged, when you feel cynical, when you feel whatever it is, you guys have, does that have the chapter? It, oh, it does. So when, when you feel, we have more of it. So when you feel, when you feel challenged, when you feel that darkness and that challenge, so it's then you have to light the menorah. It's, you have to get to that deeper place. The challenge itself actually drives you to that deeper place. In chapter 9, he says, this is also referring on a global, on a more universal level. This is not just when a person faces a crisis, but this is in general when we as a, as a collective Jewish people and a collective world, really, when we experience a crisis of darkness, which is the darkness of exile these last 2,000 years. And he says, especially, what, what's the most dark time of exile? He says, that the time right be- this is a classic mystical idea, is that the darkest time of night is right before, sun, is right before the, the, the dawn breaks. The darkest time of the night is right before it's about to get brighter again. So, and it's referred to here, the doubled and redoubled darkness of the times of the advent of Mashiach. It's the times right before... By the way, the advent of Mashiach is not, an, is not a literal translation. In the Hebrew, it's actually Aramaic. It comes from... Uh, where is this from? It's Chaim. It comes from mystical texts. It's called Ikvisa de Mashiach. Ikvisa. It's Aramaic. What's Ekev? Heel. Like Yaakov. It's the heels of Mashiach. What do you mean heels? Heels means it's, like, it's right there. The moments before Mashiach comes and the world is, 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 is light forever... It's the darkest time. It's so dark, it's doubly and redoubled. It's doubled and redoubled. What does that mean? I said before. It means it's so dark, it's not just very dark and you know it's dark. That's not dark. If you know it's dark, it's really not that dark. Isn't there also a, a, a teaching that like, right at that time before dawn, is, like, very profound things happen? Like earth change, like what do we mean? Like good things, uh, bad things? You know, the, the time between the darkest time before the dawn is just throughout the Torah, a time when important things happen. Yeah, for sure. There's no doubt about it that this is the there's there's a tremendous energy and and a tumultuousness. And you look at the books of of you know the prophets and you know they talk about Mashiach and wars. Some of them talk about wars. Some of them talks about Whatever it is, there's a tremendous energy. There's a tremendous volatility as well in this time. But right, right. So that tra- and but focusing on the darkness here, the doubled and redoubled darkness. Again, I just have to emphasize again and again and again. The greatest darkness is when you say it's not so bad. That's the greatest darkness. It's not so bad. It could be worse. I'm comfortable, it's okay, what do I need Mashiach for? That's the greatest, I'm, I'm fine in exile. Exile, maybe back in the days, maybe if there was a pogrom going on, maybe if there was a holocaust, but you know what? Thank God, we're in Atlanta, we have Piedmont Park, we have a Beltline, we have, we have so many things, it's wonderful, it's okay, it's not so bad. Thank God, it's not so bad. You go to Costco, you get hand shmura matzah. Who would have thought? Costco? Costco? Costco broke our whole matzah. You know, every year, like matzah. We don't need to sell it anymore. We've got to go to Costco. Now, you could still buy here if you want. You can still get matzah here. But it's, and th- this is exile. This is not ghost. This is like, this is light. The reality is, 
as lo- so long as the entire world is not bright, it's dark. And the greatest form of darkness is a darkness that you don't realize is dark. You don't recognize. Because then you can't deal with it. Then you don't do anything with it. Understand? Mm-hmm. If you see darkness and you call it out as darkness, that's dark, I don't like it, we're going to get through it, we're going to get past it, we're going to illuminate this darkness. So then it's dark, but you're dealing with it. The greatest, dark, the greatest enemy is the enemy that comes to you and says, I'm your friend. It's the most destructive, because then you can do, right? Yes? Yes. Okay. I think we're all on the same page. It's so opaque... It doesn't look opaque. All right, continue. This then is the lesson of the Hanukkah lamp for every single person during the time of exile. So one, one, one more point. And it's specifically in this time, with this darkness, that we have to light the Hanukkah. We have to light the Hanukkah lamps. It's specifically in this darkness of the times of exile today that we have to light the menorah in a spiritual sense. And here he says what this means on a personal level. The purpose of the darkness of exile is to awaken the service of self-sacrifice through which the darkness is refined and transformed to light. Through the collective... So look what he says here. What is the purpose of the darkness of exile? It's not just to be dark, but it's to drive us to a deeper commitment within which we've been calling the service of self-sacrifice, just like the Maccabees of old. They, they felt that essential drive to put their lives on the line, to stand up for what they knew was true. So too, this darkness of our exile should drive us to that deep place. And through this, look what he says, the darkness is refined and transformed to light. Not that you illuminate the darkness from elsewhere. In other words, it's not that you escape the darkness and go to, get out of the cave and find the light. No, 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 no. You're transforming the darkness to light. Why? Because you illuminate, because you reveal that the darkness was intended for light. And therefore, the darkness itself is light. The greatest key to your getting deeper within, and the key to that, was the darkness. Turns out the darkness was not so dark. The darkness was the greatest gift that you ever had. Just like the flood. The flood can be the greatest gift that a person has. If it drives them to something higher and deeper. And greater. Continue. And through the collective service of every single member of the children of Israel together, or at least the majority of them, since the majority of an entity is considered like its entirety, and even through one mitzvah of one Jew, whether in deed, speech, or thought, he tips the scale to the side of favor for himself and the entire world, and causes for himself and for them deliverance and salvation. All of this is a quote from Maimonides. Maimonides says that each one of us at any moment of the day, should look at the world as entirely equally balanced between good and the opposite. And if we make a choice to do one mitzvah right now, in this moment, the entire, world, the entire balance of the world can be tipped for the good and it can bring a redemption not only for a pers- on a personal level, but on a global scale, not only today, but for all time. That's the power. This is what Rambam says. He wasn't a mystic, he was a philosopher. Rambam says that every moment of the day, you have the power to change the world in this one moment. You have to think that everything is perfectly balanced, everything is waiting for you. It's almost like, you ever go to like Chuck E. Cheese or wherever these places are? I'm just saying. And they have these coin games where the thing moves in and out. You know what I'm talking about? They have like a bunch of tokens and then you have to drop in a coin and you hope that it pushes the thing over the edge and, and the tickets come out. You guys with me? Yeah. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. All right. I'm feeling the love on this side. All right. So, so it's like everything's hanging in the balance. Your one coin can tip the scales. Cheese or no cheese? No, no cheese. No, no eats. No, I could choose now. Just, just, just for the games. So, your one, co- your one act of goodness and kindness, whether in deed, speech, or even in thought, one positive thought, can change, shift the balance of the entire world and of the entire history of the world. Because we, we, we look at history as, as progressing towards something. This can change and bring about everything. The, the whole culmination of history. So first he starts off by saying that we all need to be bright. Then he says, well, most of us. Then he says, at least one of us. <laughs> right? <laughs> do, I, do I hear just one? <laughs> right? You notice that. He said all. Then he said, okay, majority. And he says, forget about majority. Even one person. But that's the calling of today. The calling of today is to recognize that it's dark. It's so dark, we don't know that it's dark. But it's dark because Mashiach is not here yet. The world is not a perfect place. There's still war, there's still fighting, there's still hunger, there's still problems. There's still tsars in the world. We need a better world. And my one action of lighting the menorah, metaphorically, can bring Mashiach. Can, can tip the scales. But it's the darkness itself that drives me to that. Continue. Chapter 10, page 64. Hanukkah and Mashiach. Now, if any mitzvah can bring deliverance to the world, certainly an increase in the fulfillment of the mitzvah of Hanukkah land would bring deliverance. Now, understand that this is a Hanukkah discourse, and it's not exactly timely right now, because I don't want any of us to go home now and light the menorah tonight. I mean, you could, but that's not the call of the hour. The call of the hour now is Pesach and Matzah and a Seder. But this, so we're just reading this, we can apply it differently in our context, but, but this, is, this is this context. He's saying, if any one mitzvah can bring Mashiach, it's Hanukkah, clearly, right? The Rebbe would always, whatever Shabbos it was, the Rebbe would always explain at the beginning of the Fabrengen, like how this is the most important week and most important parasha, the most important holiday that's ever existed in the entire... And it's true. Because right now, this is the most important time. It's, that's, this is the moment. This is the critical moment. Everything's hanging in the balance for right now. So on Hanukkah, this is, this is the context. For this mitzvah is especially related to the deliverance and the salvation, the redemption that will occur through Mashiach, since Mashiach, as well as Elijah, herald of the redemption, are of the eight princes, which is identical to the concept of the eight lamps of Hanukkah. So it says that there are these eight princes, Mishmona and Nesiche Adam. You can find more information in footnotes 30, 132 and 133. But there are various called eight princes, and who are they? They are... Yishai, Shaul, Shmuel, Amos, Zephania, Tzidkiah, Eliyahu, and Mashiach. Okay. Bottom line is, Mashiach is one of them. Eliyahu, Elijah is one of them. By the way, Elijah, we know who Elijah is, right? Eliyahu and Avi, Elijah the prophet. He comes around to the Seder and drinks some of the wine. We have a cup for him. Sneaks in. We open the door for him. Right? I mean, think about it. What, is it, what does it represent? Even at the end of the Seder, it's toward the end, it's after the meal, we recognize that as free as we are, we're still missing one more guest. It's an important thing to remember. We celebrate, the whole night is about celebrating freedom. We lean, we eat delicious matzah that tastes like cardboard. We have all of these, it's all about celebrating, well, it's, okay, it's tasting, tasting the bitterness and moving. It's a move, it's, 
you know, in education, it's the ultimate, like, tactile, immersive experience. It's like, you put yourself in that space, you're dipping things in, in, in salt water, you're eating bitter herbs, you're, you're eating the matzah that we ate back then. It's like the ultimate re-experiencing of it, and you move toward, the, toward, toward freedom, and then you open up the door, and you say, you know what? We're still missing a guest. There's still a guest that's missing. Elio, Elijah who is the Mavasar Hagula? He's the one that announces the coming of Mashiach. We're still missing something. And, and for thousands of years, 3,000 years, we've been celebrating Passover the same way. Same way. So, does, so Elijah represents the, those, who, those who still... I don't know. Yeah, Elijah represents a freedom that is tempered by the knowledge that we're not, still, we're still, we're not fully free. There's, there's four cups of wine and then there's a fifth cup. There's four cups for the freedom that we've already experienced. The fifth cup is the ultimate cup. The cup of, of global salvation, of, of, of eternal redemption, so to speak. We're not there yet. And so even as we celebrate, if you will, past accomplishments, so to speak, past redemptions, and the freedom that we've attained, the, the, the measure of freedom that we've attained so far, we recognize that we're still not there. That there's plenty of pain left in the world. There's plenty of... And, and Pesach is about getting us to that place to recognize that. But anyway, I'm just... We're kind of infusing Pesach in here as, we, as he speaks about Hanukkah. The point is, though, that there are eight princes, Mashiach and Elio, Elijah, amongst them, that, 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 that parallel the eight lamps of the Hanukkah, of the Hanukkah. Continue, there's another aspect. There's another aspect of the special connection between the Hanukkah lamps and the future redemption. Just as the Hanukkah lamps never cease, likewise, the future redemption will be an eternal redemption, after which exile is not possible. Once that light goes on, there's no more darkness. In, in other words, darkness has already, on a, on a universal and historic level, darkness has already fulfilled its purpose. Once collectively, or even one person, you know, it's easier, <laughs> once, that, once that darkness has been transformed to light, so there's no longer need for darkness, so there will no longer be darkness in the world. That's what, that's what redemption is, that's what the Messianic era is. And that parallels, he says, the Hanukkah lamps, because unlike the lamps of the temple that we don't light anymore, the temple menorah we don't light, we haven't lit for 2,000 years, the Hanukkah lamps through thick and thin, we've always lit every Hanukkah. Whether we were in Poland, whether we were in Germany, whether we were in Spain, whether we were in Portugal, whether we were in Russia, whether we were in Brazil, whether we were in Atlanta, Georgia. We light the Hanukkah lamps ever since the story of Hanukkah. The Hanukkah lamps will never cease. The temple menorah, we don't light anymore. But the Hanukkah, the concept of illuminating the darkness, that's, uh, that's always there. And that, that symbolizes the light. In other words... Hold on. It's not only the light that transforms the darkness, but it's the light, that's, the light that was the darkness. It's transformed darkness. It's tra- it's that, the light of Hanukkah is really the light, is, the light that, that's born of the darkness, or more precisely, darkness transformed. That's the, and that's the power of that light. And that light is the light of Mashiach. Mashiach is darkness transformed to light. It's the same thing. It's all synonymous. Or revealed through the Reveal, darkness. no, not even revealed. It's dar- it's, it is the darkness. Okay. It's the darkness seen in a new light. It's the purpose of the darkness. Okay. The pur- it, it is the essence of the darkness, is that blinding light. Similarly? 
Similarly, the third Beit Hamikdash is an eternal temple which will never cease. And all of this will be with the coming of our righteous Mashiach. May he come and redeem us and lead us proudly to our land. May it be very soon. That's a final uh, conclusion with a blessing for a better world, a better time. And let us say, Amen. All right, that's it. That's it for Victory of Light. I hope you all enjoyed it. Yeah? All right. Um,